Listening Dog Media. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Whereabouts are you? England, I imagine. Ma- yeah, I'm in Ibiza. Yes, you're, I'm, you're in, I'm in Manchester. Great Mancunia, fantastic. Okay, well, we're, we're, we're on good ground then. Good ground. Well, I'd rather be in Ibiza for a start, I can tell you Who that. wouldn't? Although yeah. the invasion is about to start, my friend. Oh, no, we, 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 we've been thoroughly invaded and they've uh, established a base camp here and everything. <laughs> You can always tell the Brits because hey, they walk down, walk down the streets with these pastel outfits on. They just need a silver one either end. They look like a, a caterpillar made of refreshers. They're always walking in the middle of the road and shouting as well. How to DJ. D- How to DJ. DJ. D- How to DJ. Learn to count to four and have good taste. There you go. Hello, I'm Chris Hawkins and this is How to DJ. You can't wait until you feel ready. you just got to get out there. Never, never try to be anyone other than yourself. If someone's given you a stage, bloody use it. How to DJ. A podcast that explores the life stories, techniques, minds and experiences of much-loved DJs where I ask them to pick five questions from a box of 45. It doesn't start when your dad let you play on his decks. It starts when somebody pays you. And for this episode, a DJ who spent four decades in DJ booths. It's not like now where, you know, you put a pair of jeggings on and the biggest decision you got to make is what you do with your hair. He's thugged record bags around the world. I literally couldn't do the next gig if I didn't have some kind of stimulant. He's been loved. Anybody can go to a beat and play to their mates around the pool and everybody has a great time. And not so loved. When you disagree with people who are very famous, their fans are hideous. He was also in a band. There was a moment there where they kind of are boys on the telly. He's the author of The Secret DJ and The Secret DJ Book 2. Satisfaction and happiness is completely different vibes. Happiness is very fleeting and orgasmic and satisfaction is a long, sustained note. And I get a lot of satisfaction out of my art. Here is The Secret DJ. Hello. Hello. Hello, Chris. Before we get going, uh, how much can you reveal about yourself? Quite a bit. I mean, the thing about The Secret is um, I'm a journalist. So as well as silly things like this, the second book does things like criticizes Saudi Arabia and they chop journalists into bits and put them in bags. So there's an element of safety involved in this because if you're a a whistleblower or somebody who does exposés, because I do politics as well as music, um, there's an element of safety involved. There's an element of it being imposed by the first publisher. The first publisher, Faber and Faber, wanted it to be like that. And there's a legal aspect because... 
these days we're all Americans and, and good Americans sue. Have you actually ever had any threats yourself? Oh, death threats are regular. Yeah, uh, the, the worst ones I got was from fans of Eric Murillo when uh, when he passed away and, and his um, his exploits, which were even worse kept secret than my identity, were just everywhere. You know, when he, when he died, women were allowed to speak about it, if you like, and. So it was that sort of timing. And that's the worst I've ever had. That was like almost on a daily basis of, you know, we're going to kill you. And a lot of these were from sort of, you know, slightly dodgy possible sexual predators themselves, because I'm pretty sure I know who a couple of them were. Um, so it's um, one of those things that it was sort of fueled a little bit by guilt as well. And when you disagree with people who are very famous, their fans are hideous. So then you start to get two, 300 people all in one day just savagely going at you because it's the internet so they can. So, uh, you know, you end up being a lightning rod, especially with the culture war these days. You either fall on one side of it or the other, whether you want to or not. It doesn't matter. I'm interested to know how you might answer this question then on the subject of fans. What are yours like? Oh, I don't have fans. I, I just have uh, people who disagree with me on a regular basis. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you might say that about that, but... <laughs> yeah. If there's a Venn diagram of people who read books and finish books and people who are in dance music, it's actually quite a thin intersection. The Secret DJ was a bit more in the scene, as it were, when, when it was a regular thing in Mixmag, but now it's kind of more on the internet and more to do with books. Literature and discos don't really intersect that much anymore. So, uh, yeah. I mean, we, we have people who come to the secret DJ gigs, which are pitch black behind a screen and it's got a, a quadraphonic sound system and stuff. But the secret DJ is about, if you like, questioning that whole fan-artist relationship. It's actually... I think one of the problems with our whole scene, that it used to be you walked in a rave and you didn't know who the DJ was. You didn't care who the DJ was. You applauded the records, not the person behind the decks, and you didn't know where the DJ was. I used to DJ in a separate room to the disco when I first started in the 80s. It just had a little slit through the door so people could shout abuse at you or shout requests rather. And uh, so it questions that that dynamic. But when did you go covert? Um, it was... Pretty much with the first book. I mean, before The Secret DJ, I did a little bit of agony aunt kind of thing, sort of DJ questions and answers for DJ Mag rather than the Mix Mag. And some of the what became The Secret DJ book one were already articles that I'd written. So it's an industry expose. So the secret element as well is about that. Um, if you like, you know, we talk about wrongdoing in the industry. It's a lawsuit waiting to happen. And it doesn't matter if it's true. Somebody rich... We'll try and change it anyway. We, we live in the post-truth world now anyway. All you need to do is to be rich to silence somebody, especially in England with its insane libel laws. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's complex, like a lot of things these days. If you didn't have the moniker, hmm. do you think you'd want to share the, the kind of stories that you do and did in the column and, and do in the two books? I was a dickhead before The Secret DJ. <laughs> it was so afraid. It's, it's already, I, I inherited the mantle that was always made for me. <laughs> the two books. The first, I would say, broadly, the first is more stories about your exploits. The second, I would say, more a commentary on the world in which you worked. Would you say that's fair? The first book had elements of... of, of uh, industry expose, but I was very much aware that it would be massively boring for a lot of people. So it's an arbitrary figure, but there's about 1% of stuff about our scene than there is compared to the 1960s. So I was, I thought we were underrepresented and the books that were there in the media, all the commentary and his, history, if you like, was very dry. I wanted it to be fundamentally entertaining to read, you know, so that then it would open the door to the more serious 
aspects. Before we get to your questions from the box secret DJ, do you remember your very first time, the first time you could call yourself a DJ? I don't make the rules, but I kind of do as well. It doesn't start when your dad let you play on on his decks. It starts when somebody pays you. And it's a little bit cold and a little bit, you know, whatever, but you graduate when you play a professional gig. And unfortunately, because we live in a capitalist society, that's when you get paid. And I would say you're not really a DJ until you've done gigs that you don't want to do because anybody can go to a beat and play to their mates around the pool and everybody has a great time. But when you go to a, a ski resort and you're playing house music to drunk Swedish death metal fans and they want to kill you and drink your remains if you don't play Saxon, <laughs> that's, that's when you're a DJ. That's when you, you turn that situation around and become a professional that makes everybody in the room happy, even when they don't want to be. So when was your first time? Oh, was it, when was it? Uh, <laughs> it would be uh, about 1985 in uh, a club in the north. Uh, we used to do a lot of that playing records before and after rock gigs, basically, or indie gigs and things like that. So I started to play every night in this sort of slightly student-y nightclub. And uh, after about two or three months, they started to pay me like, you know, 20 quid <laughs> to do it. And uh, it was, you, 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 were, you were basically one step down from the glass collector. And uh, when do you think you learned the trade, if you like? During that time, definitely, but certainly the time afterwards. I mean, if you're in a situation where they're not there to see you, you've got to play the right records. And if you play the wrong records, they actually throw things. It's not like now where, you know, you put a pair of jeggings on and the biggest decision you've got to make is what you do with your hair. It was a time when, uh, in gladiator school, you know, you could get physically hurt if you did it wrong. The first 10 years of DJing, when you don't really get paid, you tend to be doing things where nobody cares who you are and it's all kind of uphill, if you like. That's when you start to get the chops together to be able to control an environment, which a lot of it is to do with that. And you were finding that it came more and more naturally over that period, right? Everything does if you do it long enough. If you do it every day and you do it long enough. I mean, I didn't own any decks for the first 20 odd years. Every single night I'd go to the club. It was just a job. And also this is before you required to do anything too fancy like mixing. <laughs> so you're learning on the job if you were in front of people and you will learn a lot quicker when you've got an audience, you know, because when you cock things up, everybody lets you know, you know, it's massive boom, maybe a glass chucked at you. <laughs> in those early days, how did it make you feel being at the decks? For a time, it was indistinguishable for all the other music stuff that was going on. There was a, a sort of synchronicity of stuff going on all over the place. And around that time, it felt like you were just part of something that was quite wide. Like now, everybody say is buzzing about TikTok. It's a meme, if you like, a sociological meme. I mean, when I was a kid, you had one meme a year, like hissing Sid is innocent, something like that, where a craze like hula hoops or frisbees, and it happened once a year. Now you get a meme every hour. You know, and, and this idea that there was a shared youth culture vibe. It was very vibey around that time of just new stuff. The thing about the 80s was it was a horrible time to live in realistically, but it was very futuristic and very optimistic as well because I think because things were so awful and it feels very similar. <laughs> now, to be honest, it feels like the last 30 years never happened. Time now then for the first of your five picks from 45 in this record box here. All the questions are on 45, Steve. So here goes. I'll dip in. You say when and I'll pick one out. Okay. When? Your first question is, what's the most famous you've ever felt? <laughs> I was on top of the pops. 
Uh, and I didn't feel that famous when I was on it, but it's something that when you're a kid, Top of the Pops was everything because in those days there was only two TV channels. So being on that was something. But I think feeling it was when we were watching it on video after with my mom and dad and stuff. My mom and dad didn't really understand what I was doing, probably still don't. But there was a moment there where they kind of, our boys on the telly. Were you into TJM by then? Oh, yeah. This one was 90, mid-90s, uh, 97 maybe, something like that. Ah, uh, Okay. Because I can't say, and you're not going to, which band it was. No, it, it, it wasn't the first time. We're not a one-hit wonder, a two-hit wonder. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but what about the big venues? You know, I, when the question was, what's the most famous you've ever felt? Yeah, but well, I mean, I've, I'm not that sort of person, to be honest. I'm not, it's not sort of something to think about. It very much feels like a job, uh, you know, the first million and a half times you've done it. I don't mean you get blasé and that way madness lies, but there is an element of, I always felt, and I still to a little bit, I don't know why people are looking at me. And I often end up talking to the sound guy more than I do any other DJs because that's kind of my sort of background. Uh, and, and I feel like I'm just somebody else who's there doing a job. Uh, that sounds like false modesty, but it really isn't. It's just, I always think that the most important thing is that it's a, an amalgamation of many, many factors that makes a, a gig happen. And, and no one element is more important than the other. So um, it's a hard one to answer that because I, I think, Things like feeling famous are a little bit naff. Are the biggest and best clubs that you've played, though, where you are now in Ibiza? I mean, I'm yesterday's man, really, in Ibiza. I used to play all the big ones, but it very, very much changed in the last 10, 15 years where it became much more EDM and much more about how much money goes across the tills. It's always been an element of that, but it's now... I mean, there are actual algorithms where they measure which DJs sell the most alcohol, which is mainly in Vegas, but they have exported that technology. So it's become very, very, very capitalistic now where to a point where the music's actually incidental. Nobody even really knows what sort of music's being played. It's just, uh, if you like, sonic CGI. It's like the sort of audio equivalent of a Michael Bay film, like a Transformers movie, where it's just a load of explosions after another, very, very loosely held together with, with a storyline. It sort of matches where we are, I think, with disaster capitalism and things like that, where I think we're sort of at the end of something. We're at the end of something as a species. We don't really know what to do anymore. We're rehashing things. We're re remixing things. We're doing the remakes of everything because we kind of almost run dry. And I think that's reflected in some of our scene as well because we reflect the society quite closely. Does that mean you would or wouldn't want to do it all over again? Oh, I mean, I wouldn't swap it for the world. But it's it's a different it's a different thing now. And I, 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 I factor in the fact that I'm old and different and my perceptions are different as well. I do not begrudge anybody who's 17-year-old, you know, soiling themselves on ketamine for the first time. <laughs> it's going to be amazing and, and, and try and stop them having a good time. I'm very much aware of the fact that my perceptions have changed as well. Um, I mean, I, I always argue with people who say, oh yeah, beef is over. It's like somebody literally told me that when I arrived here in like 1987. It's the first thing I heard, and I hear it all the time. And it's the same now. It's like, oh, yeah, Abuf is just over. It's like you just don't know where to go. That's the thing. It's just changed. When you, when you came here in the 90s and it was sort of really buzzing, there were still people who were like, well, that's all corporate nonsense, you know, come, come to, uh, into the north to the hills where it's the real deal. And that still happens. It's, again, a complex thing rather than a polarised binary thing. How would life have been different for you if you'd never touched drugs? Uh, I'd probably be a lot richer. I'd probably be a lot healthier, uh, but I'd also probably be a, a very different, possibly quite normal person. I mean, 
it, it depends what you call drugs. I mean, I very much class alcohol as cigarettes and, and um, the legal side of it to be as much of that as anything. I, I've got people very close to me who are extremely holier than thou about marijuana, but are raging alcoholics. You know, so it's it's a, it's a relative term. I grew up in a drug culture. It just didn't have any drugs in it yet. You know, I grew up in a, in a society that was absolutely riddled with alcohol. And I mean that in a savagely brutal and people would go out and literally drink themselves to death because their, their, their existences were either miserable or, 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 or they were addicted to it or whatever. So it's a very relative discussion, that. But uh, specifically Class A's, though, they affected your life in, in massive ways. I've probably taken a lot less drugs than you think, certainly in terms of Class A's. Uh, it's, um, yeah, I mean, the, the, they were great times. They were great times, but they were sporadic. I wasn't doing, uh, you know, I wasn't shooting myself in the, in the ear with packets of ecstasy every single day. It was just, it was peak times. And you, you can come back from these things if you want to. That's the thing. I think when you're a victim of these things, it's because it's on top of you every single day of your life. So I've, I've had some of those, some years where it was, um, I was doing it all the time because I had to, I literally couldn't do the next gig if I didn't have some kind of stimulant because I'd just keel over with exhaustion because there would be 30 gigs before that. And, and they're, they're, they're literally continents apart. So you end up in a sort of cycle of, of necessity because it's functional and utilitarian and you have to do it. But, you know, when you're doing it for fun, you, you, it's not fun if you're doing it every day. It ceases to have any relevance. So these things come and go. So, yeah, I mean, I, I felt very much like that's why I'm quite sympathetic with people now who are in the grip of drugs, because you can arrive there without even wanting to. Your managers can give you your first drugs. You know, the people who represent you because you make more money if you never go to sleep. <laughs> so it's, it's, again, a very complex and not, not easily polarised discussion. Another dip into the box now then. Yes, dip. Please dip. Say when. When. Russell, Russell, Russell. What is the craft of DJ? I think when it's done well, it's an art form. I don't mean that in a pretentious way. It's like anything. Anybody can run, but not everybody's Usain Bolt. You know, it's, it's one of those things where the craft of DJing is a, is a very, very, very simple thing. It's just play two records at the same time. Don't cock it up. It's technically very, very simple. But the art of it is a full, total and high spectrum understanding of music in all its forms. All its forms, not just dance music. Are you a black belt? Well, I would, I'm, a, I'm a musician. I played instruments. I understand music theory, but I don't think that makes you a better DJ particularly. It can do if, if, you, if you interpret what you've learned properly. But it's like the difference between intelligence and knowledge or information and wisdom. You know, they're, they're very separate things. Some of the most intelligent people I know are the thickest people you're ever going to meet. <laughs> we know some of them are in charge at the moment. And some of the least educated people I know are so incredibly wise. You know, there's two very different things. It's the same people often mistake information for knowledge, especially when it arrives from an algorithm. So there's this element of it being an art because it's a sum of, of a vast amount of parts and experience as well. You know, it's something you just can't parachute into tomorrow, which is very unfortunate for modern society, which insists on doing everything instantly and having no background in it whatsoever. Uh, the craft is very, very simple. The art of it is a bit more nebulous, a bit harder to pin down. Do you think that there are superstar DJs who shouldn't be? Oh, absolutely. But there's a showbiz spectacle element to it and there's an artistic element to it. And sometimes the spectacle element completely divorces from the art artistic element and you just get business. That's the business part of show business. And there's nothing wrong with that. That can happen if it makes some people happy. Let them be happy. Just don't invite me. <laughs> 
You you did get a, a buzz, I assume, out of seeing your name on the building at you know on the nights that you were headlining or on a banner being pulled behind a plane. You, I mean, you did enjoy those moments, right? You should do, shouldn't you? I mean, it's it's funny. I mean, it says a lot about how deep down your own crevice you can go if you don't. What you need to do is adjust your parameters so that you know you have to say things like, "Am I happy? Am I satisfied with my life?" rather than "How much money I'm being paid? How big is my name on the billing?" Most DJs worry themselves bald about billing stuff. And, uh, and yeah, and I used to be one of them. I used to, it's just, just used to be everything. And, uh, and then I realized that I was an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> I do feel though, like that top billing at the time, perhaps, I, I don't know about retrospectively, but at the time was really important to you because it was a, a marker of the fact that you've made it. The true, you know, superpower of a proper idiot is to take things for granted. And it doesn't take you long to take things for granted. So yeah, if you want me to lie and say I was ever so humble, sir, uh, and you know, and, and and do all that fake humility thing and thanking God and the little baby Jesus, it's like I'd be lying. You know, it's like I, yeah, it was great for a bit, and then you get used to it, and, and and that's a tragic thing. That's a tragedy, and it's 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 a loss you've lost when you do something like that. I wonder, thinking back to the first question that I asked you from the box, um, whether I should have asked you uh, at the time, uh, what's the most famous your parents have ever thought of you? When I said about Top of the Pops when we were watching it on VHS, that was um, that was something. But my mate, who's who's my tour manager, recorded his home poll on the same tape. So as soon as the tape ended, it was like f- snow and then night vision and, and his bedroom. And <laughs> you've never seen me move so quick. I mean, my grandma went, oh, is that bad you watch? And I was like, yeah, it is a form of of diseased animal in the night. Yes, Grand. (laughs) So, yeah, things like that. But also, I think we did the the Love Parade, the UK Love Parade, and my mom came to that. And I think she saw then that that was a big thing as well because it was huge screens with your head the size of the Mekon with like, you know, 300,000 people. I think it was close to half a million people, the police said. But again, even talking about these things can make me seem like a bit of a knobhead. I can't change what actually happened. And all I can do is either pretend that I'm humble and pretend that these things didn't happen and be all coy and answer correctly, if you like. The, the sort of politically correct answer to these things is to sort of talk like a politician about how humble you are. Because if you engage in it, in any discussion about your quantity in, on the fame spectrum, you're kind of a dickhead straight away. So it's a very hard thing to talk about. DJ. How to DJ with Chris Hawkins. Still to come. I'm such an onion in the custard. I'm the sort of person who 200 years ago, they'd have burned me as a witch. This sort of idea that it has to be flawless. You have to have a seamless, never-ending dishwater dull tech house thing. It's it's all fake. Another one for the box now then. So when? Okay. Uh, when? When have you enjoyed it the most? All the time. I, I, I really enjoy it. I mean, it, it doesn't get better when it's a really low ceilinged, filthy basement uh, full of people who shouldn't be let out. There's elements when it's really proper like that. But to be honest, I kind of enjoy all of it, even the, even the weird sort of slightly corporate, you know, kind of plastic ones. You feel like it's a job well done. I particularly like, I do a lot of residencies. I've always been a resident DJ. And if I get a choice, I like to play first these days because most people can't do it anymore. They just bang out whatever they've got just to say me, me. And then everybody's exhausted by midnight. So I quite like, as you said before, the craft of DJ. There's a craft element where you kind of, you understand your place in the night. 
You understand your job is to set things up for other people. You understand your job is to be a little bit humble, real humility rather than fake showbiz humility, and to sort of um, be a professional as a sort of middle-aged man now. I get this sort of satisfaction. Satisfaction and happiness is completely different vibes. Happiness is very fleeting and orgasmic, and satisfaction is a long, sustained note. And I get a lot of satisfaction out of my art by doing it professionally and doing it successfully. And that success is not measured in screams and shouts and cash money and leopard skin spats and gack. It's measured in doing a job right and getting to go home and say, yeah, I really made that thing work in the capacity that I was there for. So there's a sort of element of professional satisfaction, which is probably no different to somebody who fixes washing machines. Did uh, you always, or or, or indeed, do do you still um, finish gigs and think, yeah, that's the best I can do, and and that was brilliant? No, usually the opposite. I usually think I've done a shit job. I once sort of almost flounced off. I, I, I was so disappointed in what was going on. I just got my, my mate to take over for the, for the rest of it. I think I was about half an hour left. And I went home and I was almost in tears. I got home and like, and I, and I rang this guy afterwards. I said, I'm so sorry. And he was just like, what are you talking about? It was just absolutely fine. And I just convinced myself that it was a disaster. But I think if you, if you care a lot about something and you're a professional, you're always testing yourself and you're always... Um, a little bit sort of negative about your own performance, or you don't get any better at it. What happened on that particular night? It was a huge nightclub, and I was playing individually and then back-to-back with a really good friend of mine, a DJ, and uh, we did our individual sets, and then when it was time to play back-to-back, I said, "Just can you just please do it? I, I, I've got to go home. I just I think I've just done the worst set I've ever played. And, and it was recorded as well, and he, he sent it to me, and I listened back, and it was okay. You know, it had as many, as many mistakes as they usually have. What we find these days is that everything has to be perfect to a point where people cheat, where they use sync and they use pre-recorded sets and things like that. So uh, if you are in any way naturally performing, there's always going to be mistakes. You have to embrace mistakes in order to be a professional because that's what you are, a collection of mistakes held together with some minimal successes. And uh, and this sort of idea that it has to be flawless. Your skin has to be flawless. Your teeth have to be flawless. You have to be muscular and thin. You have to have a seamless, never-ending dishwater, dull tech house thing. It's it's all fake. It's all part of the, the plasticity of, of, of modernity. So, um, yeah, if you embrace the slightly crooked end of things, the slightly broken end of things, the slightly artistic end of things, the slightly flawed side of things, you're always going to be, if you like, dealing with problematic things rather than uh, fake flawlessness. What do you think about back-to-back? Do you like doing it? It's my favourite. I think it's good for everybody. I think it's good for the dance floor. It's good for the DJs. It's good for the night because you take people out of that comfort zone and you get them to actually try DJs say, oh, well, you know, it, it reduces my individuality, whatever. It doesn't. It, it makes it shine. And, and the dance floor becomes very forgiving and allows these two different styles to emerge and it becomes very eclectic. You get something that's spiky and interesting and engaging. So I'm, I'm, I've been a, if you like, a, not just an advocate, but like a missionary for it for my entire career. I've always tried to get people to do it. Uh, back into the box for question four. Into the box, Russell, Russell, Russell. Stop. What's the weirdest moment you've had at the Dex Hall in a DJ booth? I mean, I once played in a, in, in a, in a club in, in a really tiny island, um, not far from uh, St. Vincent and the Grenadines, and, uh, and it was called Bedrock. And I was like, oh, wow, it's like, like John Digweed. And it was like, when I got there, it was because it had a picture of Barney Rubble <laughs> painted on the wall. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and it was like literally like a couple of beer crates. And uh, I know a little bit about soca and a little bit about island vibes, but I was completely out of my depth and, you know, 
people had guns and stuff, you know. My brother of all people got married in in Tibet because um, uh, he, he's he's always he's lived in China for most of his life and he he teaches English and stuff. And we ended up playing music to some Tibetan tribes people who've never heard recorded music before, which was a hell of a thing. And they really liked Basement Jacks, if I remember rightly. Yeah, that was interesting. It was all a bit sort of David Attenborough. Whether you play them or, or not in sets, uh, who are your favourite bands? For me, it's constantly fluid. Amazingly, I mean, I've just gone spent the last three weeks intently and every single day, every hour, going through all the music that I ignored in the last year during COVID. And there's a vast amount. My mini's almost full now of WAVs because uh, there's so much music out there. And this was in a, in a dry period for music. This was when people weren't releasing records. Until you're a professional DJ, people have no idea of the mountain of stuff. I have to have separate email accounts just to deal with it. I'm not a big swinging dick in the scene by any means. I, I'm completely overwhelmed with information. A lot of it's music. If you like, that's almost the DJ's job, which is to filter through these things. So I find myself overwhelmed with questions about music because it's just so fluid. It's a very difficult topic because it's so vast. Let's go back into the box and question five. Okay, uh, when? Oh, God. <laughs> Has technology made DJs better? It's enabled them, whether it's made them better or not. But you could say, has technology made people better? You know, it's like, uh, you know, we have now in our hands what is essentially the tricorder in Star Trek. You know, you sort of flip it open and it's got the entire knowledge of the universe in it and everything you could possibly need. And people use it to send pictures of the genitals to each other. You know, the first time uh, Samuel Johnson got together a dictionary of the English language, they had to repair it because the page that had cock in it was worn out because people basically queued up to look at rude words. They didn't queue up to improve their vocabulary. <laughs> so we, we have this problem where technology always outreaches us as emotional animals. We're basically, there's that moment in 2001 Space Odyssey where the triumphant monkey who's just smashed his mate's brains in, throws the jawbone of the ass into the air, and it turns into a spaceship, which is a very brilliant Kubrick moment, because it just goes to show that we're still monkeys. We've just got much more advanced things to hit people with. How advanced have you got yourself? It's sort of natural. I just, I've always... As soon as the cloud came along, I was on the cloud. As soon as uh, Ataris came along in the, in the 80s, I had an Atari. I've always been at the pointy end of things because it just is completely natural. But I don't fetishize it. I'm not the sort of person who has ranks and ranks of technology because you become engaged in the things rather than what they do. And I won't obsess on vinyl because somebody says it's warmer. I just want to see the science that says it sounds better than a WAV because it doesn't exist. Every time I've tested people between vinyl and MP3s and web, they always get it wrong if you do a blind test. Nobody has ever come up to me when, I've, when I'm playing and said to me, I can't believe you're playing a WAV in this club. Uh, the, the format never made the beat more persuasive. The format never made the hairs on your neck stand up from the lyrics. You touched on this earlier, but uh, I wonder if uh, using memory sticks and playing WAVs out, you know, I wonder if that gives you even less to do while the music's playing. Does that mean that you are even more uncomfortable than ever at the desk? <laughs> well, I play CDs because I've got this theory that people are paying you and they want to see you doing some work. <laughs> uh, and when you get to a point where you, you look a bit like you're checking your emails, it, it's a little bit of a ripoff. Yeah. Also, I just find it easier to remember physical objects. They exist in my mind. I have a visual memory, so I remember what my handwriting looks like and what it's called and what I've written on it. It might not be what the tune's called, you know. Mm. It might be Cheesy Space Jam, Volume 6, but I will remember that. If I walked to a gig and you completely took away all my equipment and gave me a new set of equipment, I'd be able to DJ with that because if you gave me a laptop with YouTube, I could remember what the tunes are and play them for you without me actually having my luggage. Yeah. And that's not because I'm a superior being. It's just anybody who's uh, 
artistically involved in something carries a lot of it in there. I used to know a guy who was a composer, and by a composer, I mean, you know, classical music. And he used to walk around muttering, and you, could, you knew that in his head he was composing. He wasn't sat writing it down. He was creating it in his mind. And I think you have to have an element of carrying it with you in your head. Yes. I have a friend who's a very famous um, TV presenter and uh, does uh, live news programs. And mm. she has got into the habit of muttering to herself more and more. And I, I think you might have just identified maybe what she's doing. And she's a big brain. I wonder if the if she's doing something similar, formulating sentences or thoughts, processing the thoughts. Yeah. And then thinking about how she's going to deliver those thoughts. You memorize, you rehearse in your head. You, you have, uh, if you like, you, you, your equipment, your arsenal, your quiver is in your brain. A craftsman carries tools around, an artist just carries themselves around. It's that difference of sort of how deeply engaged in it are you. Thank you so much uh, for being so, uh, I was expecting nothing less, but for being so honest. Doesn't do me any favours. It doesn't do me any favours, believe me. <laughs> Why do you say that? Uh, the, the books have done really well and, and quite rightly so, because they're both hard hitting and they're so engaging and they're brilliant. Thank um, you. I've got, I just want to step in three quick fire questions. Right. Uh, what's your tech of choice? I'm really, I, I really like the cloud because the cloud has, has made me post-object, which is a bit wanky, but it decided for me where I lived because it had the amount of space that would take up all my crap. But now I've literally got rid of everything because it all exists on the cloud. And that's freed me up unimaginably. I mean, I live like some kind of weird Bond villain now in a sort of sterile white environment, and I quite like it. Uh, next, uh, how much do you plan your sets? I didn't used to at all. I used to think it was entirely about improvisation, but I think that was a bit extreme. And I think preparation is highly valuable now, so I've changed over the years. So now I prepare quite a bit, but I, I also prepare to, to abandon it completely, which I think so it's a, a bit of both. Do you hate the industry that you work in? I think it hates everybody who's in it. So I would say it's the other way around. I'm pretty sure it hates me. And, uh, and it's designed to, to chew people up and spit them out and, and, and then stamp on the pits <laughs> until they squeak. So it's, uh, I think it's, uh, if you realize that it's not your friend, then you can have an adult relationship with it. And would you have liked to have done anything else, particularly now that you're a little bit more chilled out and doing it a bit less because you don't need to do it so much? Do you ever think, oh, you know what? Yeah, I should have pursued the mechanic thing. Not really. No, I mean, I'm such an onion in the custard. I don't think uh, a society would... I'm the sort of person who 200 years ago, they'd have burnt me as a witch. I'm just grateful anything that would have me. <laughs> so no, I'm not the sort of person who looks back, thinks about what if, not at all. I have to uh, very quickly ask, uh, for those that know the columns and, and have read the books, mm. uh, how's tour manager? He's alive. Which is amazing. Uh, he's he's alive. Yeah, he, he's alive, and he's sort of he's come around, and he, he, he's uh, he's he's going to try and visit us. Um, he's he's a, he's now a, a gentleman of leisure. He's he's kind of retired, and 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 he's a survivor, and and now we we look back and laugh. Do you still see him uh, infrequently, purely because of geography? But it, when I do go back home to the far north, uh, I always make a point of going to see him because he's pretty much my best mate. Really, just don't tell him. <laughs> Yeah, you had a very funny way of showing that uh, through the stories of the books. Anyway, look, there's some kind of catastrophic disaster, okay, secret DJ, and the world's about to end, mm. and you have to play the last music on earth. What would you play? Um, I don't find it difficult to say what your favourite record is. I really love Underwater by Harry Thuman, which is a, a really cosmic 
sort of classically music influenced disco record from 1970. Yeah, it sounds like it was made yesterday, but it's, you know, it's uh, older than I am. Uh, and, and every time I play that, it just fills me with joy. It paints a picture with sound, which I think is something that a composer can do, which is to take noises and actually create an image in your mind. Because when I first heard this, I didn't know what it was called. And I said to my mate, oh, I can see shoals of fish underwater. And he went, ah, it's called underwater. And I was like, oh, and I got all chills and like, you know, hair stood up on the back of my neck. And uh, I really like, I like albums that are complete. That you can put an album on and everything on it is, is brilliant until the end. So, you know, something like Lude Reed Transformers like that or Sergeant Peppers or Marvin Gaye, what's going on? So I, I throw the megahertz by Prefab Sprout. It's, it's quite a new record, relatively new from Prefab Sprout. And it's a kind of um, a sort of audio collage, and, but it's also just a beautiful thing. You sort of put that on. I'm just like, oh, there is, there is beauty in the world. Uh, so I put the yeah, troll the megahertz on and maybe any, if it was something sort of dance music, if you like, because it's kind of got to do it. I, I really love DJ Parrot from Sheffield, who's also known as Crooked Man. Parrot's doing all Rasheen Murphy's sort of new vibes as, as a producer. He's, he's, he's really sort of working with her on a lot of those little new records, uh, remixes them. And also Crooked Man is just what I consider to be great progressive dance music because it's incredibly simple, but also hugely effective, very slow, very powerful, but also very emotional by somebody who's been doing it you know, well over 40 years. So, uh, yeah, those three. Yeah, great choices. Rasheen is awesome, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. The last true diva. Uh, Secret DJ, you've been, I think, despite everything, uh. your passion really does still come through, which I think is, well, surprising, if nothing else. And I can't thank you enough for coming on that podcast. <laughs> that was what they call a thickly veiled compliment. <laughs> <laughs> thank you to the Secret DJ. Pleasure. And that was How to DJ. Thanks for listening. Please remember to follow us wherever you get your podcast from. 